0: I know I promised that Angie Cruz would be here on this episode to talk about her novel Dominicana, but Angie's book was chosen by Good Morning America to be the first read in its cover-to-cover book club, so she's a little busy this month and will be joining us later in the year. So today we have a special episode with my good friend Anne Bogle, better known to her legions of followers online as the modern Mrs. Darcy. Anne chose my novel The Bookman's Tale as the October read for her book club and asked if she could interview me by phone for her podcast. But the good people at Bookmarks invited Anne to come interview me live in downtown Winston-Salem. We had an audience of about 150 people, and I hope you'll enjoy listening in on this special episode of Inside the Writer Studio.
1: We are so happy you're here at Bookmarks tonight with us. I'm Beth. I'm the bookstore manager. We like to do this thing at the start of the event. Is it anybody's first time at Bookmarks? Yeah! Welcome! At the end of the evening, I'm going to tell you about a few of our upcoming events, so I very much hope that we see you again soon, and you too become one of our regulars. I see a lot of friendly faces out in the audience tonight. One of our favorite friends here at Bookmarks is Charlie Lovett. We have have the distinct um, honor of being Charlie's hometown bookstore. He was so instrumental in getting our space started and supporting all of us. He's a f- huge friend of Bookmarks, a huge friend of Winston-Salem. We are thrilled to have him tonight with us, but also very happy to welcome Ann Bogle, who I have to tell you, I think y'all are gonna agree with me. Does everybody feel like Ann is your friend? Yeah. So, Anne's in the car with us. She's in, I'm putting on my makeup, listening to Anne in the morning. So, every week, I spend this time with her, and I really had to tell myself, Beth? Anne does not talk to you every week. (laughs) Do not be super crazy, but I am super crazy because we are a fan. Anne was here last year at festival. Um, Love her books, love her new book. We'll talk about that later tonight, but it is our pleasure to welcome her back. So please give her a very warm welcome. And I'm gonna let y'all get started.
0: Thanks.
2: That's right. This is mine. Well, it's mutual. We are readers, so we are all kindred spirits. We can, I mean, you're down with Green Gables, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. She's a book lover. (laughs) Book lovers. We're all friends. Um, I would like to know when I can claim bookmarks regular status. Where did Beth go? Uh, Because we like hang out. I've seen you all over the place this fall in two different states. And this is my second annual appearance to bookmarks. That's right. So maybe, Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I've given you a lot of money over the course of (laughs) that. My trunk is stocked up. Well, okay, I only have two, but I have two YA books for a difficult to... Get books for daughter. You all are always asking me. I have a kid. They don't know what to read next. What should they read next? I'm like, I don't know. I ask them at bookmarks. So, there's my there's my pro tip for the they evening. They will tell you. Yeah. yeah. How do you figure out what to read next?
0: I come to bookmarks. Yeah.
2: Okay. See. See.
0: I come and I see I see an author who sounds interesting and I buy the book or on much more seldom He's got occasions. a lot of books at his
2: house. Uh, yeah, so yeah. I, was, I would
0: go through this stack of books to read. It's like, oh, this person was at the festival. This person came for an event this summer. This person was on the podcast. It's mm-hmm. all, you know, mm-hmm. so it's, it's in a lovely, lovely way. It's never ending.
2: Never ending. Yeah. So let me tell you all a little bit about how this event happened because it's probably not how you think. Mm-hmm. So for, since May... Of 2016, we've had the Modern Mrs. Darcy Book Club where we have community, classes, conversation. Who here is actually part of that online?
0: All right. Thank you. Excellent. It's a
2: pleasure to be reading with you in person. Oh, and we're recording online, so hi, online crew. Hi, we're right. sad you're not here, but we don't expect you to be because, yeah. And some people are here from like California. Where's Kelly? Hi. All right. Did anybody else come from far tonight? From. How? how where? You came from Dallas, um, in Tarabang, March. It's not written in pen, but it's like in strong pencil. Okay, who else? I saw hands, yes, yes, Florida. Tiffany is a podcast guest. What's your episode called? T- Tiffany of the Literary Society. Literary Society. Oh, don't call it a book club, mm-hmm. from January of this year. Is anybody else from far-ish? Where Originally, Yeah? Okay. OK. Well, what we do in Book club, See, what happens in book club, like only some of it stays in book club. Because (laughs) when you become a better reader, you become a better liver. So we want you to take your books out into the world. But something that we do is we read a book every month. I know this is shocking, but it's one of the things we do in book club. And we're always looking for an interesting variety of books, genres, perspectives, points of view, um, authors who are living and dead. And when the authors are alive, we really like to be able to talk to them in person. I've been wanting to read a book by Charlie Lovett because he writes books for book lovers by, clearly, even if I didn't know you in person, from the page, I would know you were a book lover.
0: It, yeah, it's interesting how suddenly that seemed to work. If you write books for people who like books, they read your books. That's, <laughs>
2: right, right, right. I like
0: that. Right. You know? And then so. they
2: want to read more books. Yeah, yeah, We are all part of a virtuous circle here. So I knew since we started the book club that... Charlie's books would be so fun to read in a bookish community where you feel understood on the page But you get to say to your friend like Didn't you love this and they can say oh my gosh page 89 and you go I know (laughs) and it's just it's great to be able to do that in community So I reached out to Charlie and said we would love to read your books in book club I couldn't decide which one at first
0: Yeah, I can't remember how we decided, but we decided that Bookman's Tale... I think I said,
2: can we read the Bookman's Tale? It might have been that
0: when you emailed me, I was sitting in what some people think of as Peter Byerly's cottage in Kingham, (laughs) uh, and so that that book was a little bit more in my head at the time.
2: Well, so then he wandered down to bookmarks, and they started talking, and he emailed me back and said, do you want to do it live? And I said, you're in North Carolina. And then I said, oh, wait, I'm coming to North Carolina, actually, and here we all are. Here we are. So we had to figure out how to do the live video, and it was worth it. Worth it. Happy to be here. So, Charlie, I'm not going to be, like, looking through your book like a scholar all night, but there is one passage that I wanted to read out loud to you, because I'm sure that's not weird.
0: No, it's not weird at all.
2: Let me tell you. So, my pal, Ariel Lahan,
0: Who's been on my podcast also, so.
2: Oh, Charlie has a podcast. And a fancy board that I... What's the technical name for this?
0: Uh, sign. <laughs> yeah.
2: But how do you say that in Latin?
0: It stands for standing insignia. No, it's...
2: So, he has a fancy sign, and you should take a photo of it or something so you remember. Inside the writer's studio is his podcast. I was on an episode last fall. That's right. Uh, my friend and I listened to his episode with Louise Penny. Do we need to explain? Should we tell them who she is?
0: Uh, there seems to be a little bit of murmur of recognition, like okay. almost, okay. almost like maybe they've heard of one of her books or All something.
2: Alright, yeah. we don't have time for segues into, you know, <laughs> that stuff. But we listened to that episode on the way up, and Ariel's been on too, but she, um, I was going to say jokes. I don't think she's joking. She talks about her past books as ex-boyfriends. You love them once, you might not even remember why. They are just not part of your life anymore. So I've asked Charlie to, how do you think of your old books? I'm guessing it's not as ex-boyfriends. So you told me
0: that this afternoon, I was thinking about that, and I think, to me, they're more like old friends who've moved away from town. You may not think of them all the time, and they're not your current passion, but they still have a really special place in your heart.
2: All right. That's less punchy.
0: Yeah, well, I just don't have as many ex-boyfriends as Ariel has, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) You can talk about that when you have her back on the show. Right, right.
2: (laughs) Okay, so I'm going to read this to you from your old friend. (laughs) Who I think you'll see why you were, you know, together a lot once. I know it might seem silly to some people, but it's the... Whoops. (laughs) Here we go. Maybe I should have told you more first. This is a book about a bookseller and book collector who believes in the power of literature above... I think all else in the beginning. I think think so, yeah. And then books open a door to uh, him finding a richer way of life. So this is Peter Byerly of The Cottage we will discuss. He's explaining um, to a friend, I know it might seem silly to some people, but it's the way I want to change the world, to bring books together with people who will love them and preserve them for the next generation. Now, something there is about this book is it came out in 2014 which means you what wrote it what
0: which means i wrote it in like 2008 to 9 something like that. Oh really? Yeah. Yeah, it was a, it was a long journey to get that that book published. It was my first book with a major publisher. I've written lots of books with minor publishers, but mm-hmm. it was the first, you know, sort of big novel that I wrote. And and there was many years of revising and sending it off to a few agents and getting some rejections. In those days, you literally printed it out and sent it in a physical package to an agent and then they sent you a postcard that said no thank you. Um <laughs> But, but eventually it, it was uh, it was loved and, and published and found by the world so
2: and we 're so glad it was um, I've, I swear this relates. I put out a summer reading guide every year since two thousand and twelve. Readers email me all the time and say i 've got the 2016 guide in my hand. Which of these books have aged well?" <laughs> Y'all, we're talking about three years, and I know, Charlie, that it would be premature to call this a modern classic. However, this is a book that is aging well, (laughs) and that people are still, this is going to stand the test of time, because it plugs into that love we have for books, and I just love to hear you discuss, we're going to get into the antiquarian collection, and we're going to get into your history, because I don't know, and I want to, (laughs) but... Tell, tell me a little bit about how that's important to you and how you wanted to, of all the things you could have written a story about.
0: Well, and I think really one of the reasons that the Bookman's Tale works is because I, I had, you know, tried to write novels. Then I went to an MFA program where you do nothing but write short stories. And then I tried to write novels again as an yeah. as an MFA graduate where you think you have to write the great literary novel, you know. And finally, I just thought, okay, maybe I should just tell a story about something that I'm passionate about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm passionate about, about books and about the way books um, connect people. I mean, just look around the room. This That's what's happening right here, right now. Um, but I'm also especially fascinated by the way that books, both as texts and as physical objects, connect people across generations and across time and across place. Uh, And so I started to to write about that. Mm -hmm. And I had been performing some Shakespeare around that time so I thought maybe I'll throw a little Shakespeare in there. Mm -hmm. And I my wife and I love spending time in the English countryside so I threw a little English countryside. And it turns out when you write about the things that you really care about, Mm -hmm. that you're really passionate about, um, that comes across on the page and and it communicates to the reader and you get an opportunity not only to share that passion but to write a story that is underpinned by by something that really means something to you. Mm-hmm.
2: And you can feel that. I mean, we've all read books that felt empty, have we not? I think it's so interesting that you said that books connect people across time and across generations because something that I've noticed in my reading life and in this community here is that um, we are often segmented by uh, demographic these days in a way mm-hmm. that doesn't feel right to me. Yeah. And yet books bring bring people together. Mm-hmm. Like there I don't have many communities in my life where you have 20-year-olds and 70-year-olds in the same room talking about the same thing. Mm-hmm. But Books will do that. I'd, I'd love to hear about your experience with Across Time and Across Generation. Well,
0: so I'm a, I'm so, a book collector, yes. um, as, as you know, and so one of the things that fascinates me, and this comes out in, in The Bookman's Tale, um, is the idea of provenance, which is the history of ownership of an object, and in my case, ownership of of a particular book. So for instance, some of you may know, a few days ago, the um, English cleric John Henry Newman was made into a saint by the Pope. And I was able to go to my shelf and pull down a copy of Newman's autobiography that belonged to Lewis Carroll, Lewis Carroll's personal copy, because I collect Lewis Carroll. And so to me, that book has more Interest and more meaning, because it belonged to someone that i 'm interested in and that I care about, but in the bookman 's tale, I wanted to follow that provenance through almost four hundred years of history um, to show how one one book, one physical object, not just one text but one specific copy of one book, could tie together all these different people as it moved through history because i 've seen that happen and it's it 's It's something really special to pull a book off a shelf and see the very first reader's name written on the end paper from 1865 or from 1780 or from 1920 and to realize that you're never going to come face to face with that person but you're going to share an experience with that person that, that you will never meet, you may know nothing about but you know that you can share an experience with them by just opening the pages of that book.
2: Now, the first time I read The Bookman's Tale, which I am a rereader, but I don't reread everything, but I've really enjoyed revisiting this one, so thank you for that. I did not know anything about the world of antiquarian book Mm -hmm. collecting, Mm -hmm. especially because I hadn't yet read First Impressions, which is a literary mystery about the works of Jane Austen, which I know, yes, I heard that. She's (gasps)
0: another writer. I don't know if you've heard of her. Uh, I have not had her on the podcast
2: yet.
0: Her publicist is just a very difficult to work with. You know. Unresponsive. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I do believe that's the medical term. Yes.
2: <laughs> I didn't know anything about antiquarian book collecting. And uh, I didn't know that I cared, although it did make for a very interesting plot. But then, I don't want to make you all jealous, but Bookmarks does do an amazing literary festival in Winston-Salem and people come from near and very far. That's worth it. To attend this, and you should write a book and get yourself an invitation because then you might get to go to Charlie's house for dinner. That's right. And he will show you his Lewis Carrolls. And it really wasn't until, I mean, I've encountered people who love books over the years and who might have a few collectibles and they're interesting, but holy smokes! (laughs) I mean, I wish I wish that this was like um, a Marvel movie where we could like pop up our screen and we could like zoom in to photos and can you tell what i spent my summer doing with my kids? Um, <clears throat> how, how did you get into antiquarian book collecting?
0: So my, my father was a book collector and an English professor. So I grew up in a house where books were appreciated in two different ways. They were appreciated as texts and they were also appreciated as physical objects and so <laughs> that was sort of became part of my DNA both of those things and when I was fishing around, I decided I want to be a book collector. When I was fishing around for something to collect, I, I had listened to these old records of um, Cyril Richard. You remember Cyril Richard? He plays Captain Hook in the Mary Martin Peter Pan. So he made these records. I see some of you are out there old enough to know what records are. Um, of, of Alice in Wonderland, reading Alice in Wonderland. And I used to listen to them. And so I thought, well, I'll collect Alice in Wonderland. I, I knew nothing about Lewis Carroll. I knew nothing about that he'd written other books, that he was a mathematician and a photographer and a logician and an inventor of games and all these other things. Um, and, it, and it, you know, led me to this to this very rich place. And there's a quote in the Bookman's Tale that I think about every time people come to the house to visit and to look at books, whether they're authors or, or readers or anyone. And that is when, when Peter first... Uh, is in the rare book room at Ridgefield University uh, over here in Eastern North Carolina. Um, it's not as well known as some of the other universities because their basketball team is just not. <laughs> <laughs> not great. But he, he's looking at, at um, a copy of a book called The Bad Quarto of Hamlet, the very first printing of Hamlet. And the librarian comes in and Peter goes, oh, I'm, I'm sorry that I was touching that. And he says, the librarian says, there's no point in having these things if we don't have the pleasure of looking at them. And to me, that has been the greatest joy of being a book collector. Not just surrounding myself with books, but being able to share those with other people, maybe ignite a passion in another person for for an old book, for an illustrator, for a story, for for collecting, for, you know, whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. Uh, which is why the bookmarks dinners are always so much fun. I mean, to see a Caldecott award-winning author holding your copy of the first edition of Alice in Wonderland, like, it just doesn't get any better than that as a Mm -hmm. book collector, you
2: know? Well, and I'm glad you said holding, because I am a book lover, and the idea of putting books in sleeves behind glass so that you didn't touch them, just see... Seem to go against my experience with books. Yep. Who's read Anne Fadiman? Y'all, I am a carnal book lover. Like my usual bookmark looks like. Sorry, Charlie. Here, I'll do it my own. <laughs> like just like, boom. Or I got a pack of tissues right here. I could use that too. That'll work just fine. Um, and I write in them and I mess them up. And if my, I almost said my kids. If I spill my drink all over them, because that's how it goes in my house. They're much neater than me. Um, it's you know it's replaceable. It's yeah. It's a book, which is amazing, but it's just a book. Um, so I didn't like the idea of shrouding them. But that's not how you are with your books
0: at all. No. I, you are like, I here, mean, touch the page. Yeah, I really agree. I was I like, what's, what's the point in having them if you, can't, if you can't pick them up and touch them and feel that Connection that we were yeah. talking about. Um, to think about, I mean, I think if you've never held or read the first edition of your favorite book, whatever that is, go to a rare book library or go to an antiquarian bookstore, wherever you need to go. If your favorite book is the Bookman's Tale, you can just come to my house. <laughs> But to see that text... I mean, when I was working on First Impressions, I went to the Rare Book Library at Wake Forest and took down the first edition of Pride and Prejudice. And I read... First of all, that opening sentence. um, It is a truth universally acknowledged that a a man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And to see words that feel like they've been there forever on the page as they appeared to the very first people who ever read those words, um, it can be a revelation. And so, uh, yeah, I absolutely believe that That books are there. A book is to read. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Murray Sendak wrote a wrote a book called "A Hole Is to Dig." A book is to read, and the lovely thing about collecting books is that if you collect wine or stamps, you know, and then you use them for their originally intended purpose, you're left with an empty bottle or a letter that you send to a friend. For the younger members of the audience, afterwards, we'll tell you what a letter is. But if you collect books, you can read that book without detract... Not only do you not detract from its value, in some ways you add to its value, because you now are part of the history of that book.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. Let's talk about Shakespeare. Sure. Or The Bookman's Tale. So The Bookman's Tale, you all... Okay, so who listens to What Should I Read Next? Charlie, you talk with authors every day on... Mm -hmm. well. It feels like every day if you're catching up (laughs) inside the writer's studio. Um, Something that has really surprised me about this gig we have is how difficult it is for people who professionally put words together to put words together to describe these books we love. Yeah. Yeah. So with that being said, so in The Bookman's Tale, you have a poor, lonely guy grieving his wife Mm -hmm. who has a literary mystery dropped in his lap, and he has to go chase this thread because as a book lover he feels it his duty and he just can't help
0: himself he can't because help himself. it's, it's yeah. like he yeah. needs
2: to find out what happens next. Does anybody know what that's like?
0: <laughs> which, which- and, and I mean it's also the thread that he sees might pull him back into the mainstream of life from this Margin of grief that he's been sort of wallowing in since his wife's yes, death. Yes, and
2: it. I love that you put it like that because one criticism of people who do not understand our pursuits is why would you want to leave the real world to go visit a fictional one mm-hmm. in pages? But I love the way you just said that the it was the book pulling him back into his real life.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the original title of this book was "Marginalia," which is the word in the rare book business we give to the what you write in the margins of a book, right? And I thought this was a great title because it not only got at the central artifact in the book, the pandosto, that has this marginalia written in it. But it also got at the fact that Peter, at the beginning of the book, is really living at the margins of life. Oh. and oh, this, that's good. This, this book is a story about a man who's living in the margins, and how he gradually moves back into the text of his life. And it doesn't mean that he's healed, it doesn't mean that everything is fine, but it means that at least he's living again. Well, my publisher said, you know, marginalia, yeah, that's a great title if you want to sell the book to like eight rare book librarians.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but they felt like maybe the, you guys would want to read it too, so we gave it a different title. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, I, d- I do feel that it's very much um, it, at its core that that's what it's about. It's about about Peter, you know, starting out as a sort of broken man who lives, he's living in the edge of life, mm-hmm. finding a way back in, and it's books that give him that that pathway.
2: Mm-hmm. So tell me about Shakespeare.
0: So he was a writer, also. <laughs> <laughs> also, it's not During been on the our podcast. test call, I no. said, Charlie,
2: tell me about dinner. <laughs> that was interesting, too. I'm sorry, that's not video. <laughs> Tell me about Shakespeare and you.
0: Right. So so um, when I started working on Bookman's Tale, I had been uh, performing occasionally in some Shakespeare plays. I had, I had played the role of the Duke in Measure for Measure, which is the lead part in that play. I was told afterwards that he has a third of the text. I was horrified <laughs> that I had memorized a third of a Shakespeare play. I mean, I'm saying this in front of one of our great Winston-Salem Hamlets who's, you know, done a lot more Shakespeare than I have. But nonetheless... Uh, uh, you know, the Bard was was on my mind and we had spent time when we lived in England in the 1990s. Um, my wife and daughter and I went to see a lot of Shakespeare. She was, our daughter was nine. We were essentially homeschooling her for a semester and homeschooling her consisted of hopping in the car and driving up to Stratford and seeing the, the Royal Shakespeare Festival. Um, so uh, that when, when I was, I wanted to write a book about rare books for people who maybe don't know a lot about rare books. I thought, well, what sort of, what sort of book could almost anybody relate to? And I thought, well, everybody knows Shakespeare. And, and everybody knows there's a sort of mystique about Shakespeare, so why not just tap into that? Mm-hmm. Um, and and not everybody, but many people know that there is this, um, I don't even know if we want to call it a controversy, but that there is there are people who believe that the plays attributed to William Shakespeare of Stratford upon Avon were actually written by somebody other than the son of a glove maker who lived in the Midlands in England in the 16th century. Uh, and so I thought, well, that is, Something that that gives the opportunity for uh, some conflict and some some interest and some mystery, what if you could prove that Shakespeare wasn 't really Shakespeare, or what if you could prove that Shakespeare was really Shakespeare either way you know would make would make an interesting book um, and so that 's one of the reasons why the first book that Peter encounters um, is what we call the bad quarto of Hamlet, so I thought. If, if you know nothing about rare books, I need you to go, oh my gosh, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard of when Peter encounters his first book. So I figured nobody's gonna read a book called The Bookman's Tale that has a cover that looks like that who's never heard of William Shakespeare, right? Or who's never at least read or seen or knows about a play called Hamlet. So I thought if I if I put in his hands a book, a copy of Hamlet that was printed when Shakespeare was still alive and well and walking the streets of London, like. Anybody who would pick up this book would go, oh, that's pretty cool. That's a cool book. That's a book I'd like to have in my hands. So I think it began with that, with, with wanting to find a way to engage a reader um, who maybe is not a Lewis Carroll collector and is not going to have the slightest bit of interest in some rare pamphlet about logic, but who would think that holding the very first printing of Hamlet would be kind of a cool thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's, I think, how Shakespeare came into the book. Um, And then also the authorship question gave it another level of mystery that Peter could be sort of drawn into.
2: Now, I imagine that you began writing this book, or researching this book, uh, pretty clear on where you stood as to the uh,
0: conspiracy theories here. Yeah, so... Uh, yes, I will. But, but let me give you, this as a conf-
2: two-parter. I'd love to hear what you what you found out along the way that surprised you. I will
0: confess to being what they call a Stratfordian. I'm I'm one of those people who boringly thinks that William Shakespeare of Stratford wrote the plays commonly attributed to him. Um, but the more I researched it, the the reasons for my feeling that way evolved mm-hmm. um, because I started to learn about, for instance, the role of the master of the of the Queen's revels, uh, the, the the member of the royal household who's kind of in charge of theater, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have that now? Uh, um, and uh, and all the other, you know, all the all the people behind the scenes in the in the theater, uh, the the people who who rolled the cannonballs across the ceiling to make it sound like thunder and all that sort of stuff. And I started to think about how many people from. The royal household, all the way down to the illiterate working man, would have to have kept this secret that the plays weren't really written by William Shakespeare, and it just seemed inconceivable to me that all of those people could could shut up for the amount of time they would have had to had to keep quiet for. Um, and so that's that's where I came down on. But but I I certainly admit that it's that it is a is a question that leads to very interesting conversations um, because there are there are certainly some reasons to, to wonder how this guy with basically a grammar school education from now he's frequently portrayed as being from this little bitty town but Stratford actually was one of the larger towns in England at the time but but nonetheless somebody who didn't go to Cambridge didn't go to Oxford you know how does he end up writing these plays it's a, it's a very interesting question to ask um, and it's a question that I try to answer a little bit of in a fictional way mm-hmm. in the novel, but it is a novel. It is not a, an academic study of Shakespeare. I'm not trying to say, this is right or this is wrong. I'm just trying to say, isn't this a cool story? Um, imagine if this happened. Um, but I have had people, like uh, an English teacher from my former high school, say to me, oh, I wish that would really happen. <laughs> I love the way that book played out. <laughs> so
2: <laughs> Something that really drives this story forward that I really enjoyed wrestling with and I'm curious to hear your further thoughts on is the idea of forgery. Now, when yeah. when I hear forgery, I hear bad, crime, obscenity. But in your book, it's, it's more nuanced.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, not too long but so when I was in while I was in the antiquarian book business there was this big scandal in in Utah and a friend of mine who was a bookseller was involved in this um, with one of the great forgers of all time Um, and he might have never gotten caught if he didn 't try to pull off a big book deal where he was selling a collection that didn 't exist and then it started to go south and then he started to send pipe bombs to the people that were involved in it and now he 's in federal prison and has he written me about the bookman 's tale? No, not one word um, so but I had been in the book business when this when this was going on, and it was you know people were going back to their their Emily Dickinson letters and realizing that they were forgeries, and and you know he rewrote the whole early history of the Mormon Church by selling forged documents to to the Mormon Church. So I mean it was I was fascinated by it, and then I knew about another forger in the nineteenth century called Thomas Wise, um, who forged pamphlets that he attributed to people like Elizabeth Barrett Browning and John Ruskin and and they would be like, you know, here's a couple of the sonnets from the Portuguese but published three years before the book came out. Oh, it's an incredibly rare pamphlet. Yeah. And he wasn't found out for, for decades. I'm and,
2: laughing because there's such a great turn of dialogue in the... I feel like you all can't see me. Can you see me? I'm not, like, turning my back on you. <laughs> there's a great um, dialogue exchange in your book where... Um, when a Peter's mentor says to him, ooh, that's a wise one.
0: Yeah. And like,
2: yeah. I mean, don't you want to be a, wise? A wise no. forger. Yeah, what no, a great you do name not for in a the forger. Yeah.
0: Um, so I started researching how these forgers actually did what they did. And I started realizing that although their intent may have been criminal, their actions were artistic and scientific and in some ways brilliant. Uh, and the things they were able to accomplish could not have been accomplished by, by just anybody. Uh, and so I thought, well, what if one of my characters is like that? Uh, and that's, that's the the Victorian character, uh, Philip Gardner, who, whose dream in life is to be a, a painter who is recognized as a great painter, but who is condemned to really be a brilliant copyist. If you, you can, he can copy anything, but he has no originality. Uh, or so we think. <laughs> but I don't want to give away the end of the book. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs>
2: But but much of the book is a uh, ra- rabbit chaser? What do you call it? Did well, I mention uh, I was running a fever it, last night?
0: So, <laughs> you know, it's funny. If people say to me, what kind of book is The Bookman's Tale? And I go into bookstores and I see it. Sometimes it's just shelved with fiction. Sometimes it's shelved with mystery, although I didn't set out to write a mystery. But I I honestly believe that any good novel is a mystery Mm -hmm. because if you want to know what happens on the next page and you don't know, then it's a mystery, right? But I did not set out to write a, oh, the butler comes to the front door and there's a body on the floor of the drawing room kind of mystery, you know, and yet it gets shelved as mystery. Every now and then I see it shelved as literature, which is really nice. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, so it was not, it was not my intention to write a mystery, and yet when I sat Mm -hmm. down at one point and cataloged all the crimes that are committed over a period of 400 years in Mm -hmm. this book, there were a lot of crimes committed in this book. Mm -hmm. Uh, Including including, uh, you know, there's, a, there's at least one murder. Um, so I don't know, but yet Peter, there's definitely a section of the novel where Peter is sort of sucked into what I think of as the classic Hitchcockian situation. He, The bad guys, he thinks bad guys are after him, mm-hmm. and he thinks the police are after him also. He believes that he's been framed for a crime, and he believes that he has to solve a, a mystery at odds with, with bad people. In order to exonerate himself and also to prove the things that he wants to prove, so it's it's sort of a it's sort of a classic you know man against the world um, kind of situation mm-hmm. for for a section of the novel, yeah.
2: And. If you haven't read The Bookman's Tale yet, I hope he wants you want to by now, but much of the thread that pulls you through is trying to figure out what is real and what is fake, and how could these forgers possibly have pulled this off, and the answer is that they were artists.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a point at which Peter says, um, towards the end of the book, he's thinking about the books in the Rare Book Library um, at Ridgefield, where he first came to know and love rare books. And he says, you know, I wonder if there are forgeries on the shelf of this library that are so well done that they will never be detected. Um, And to me, it's a very interesting philosophical question. If if that is the case, Is there a difference between the forgery and the real thing? Um, I, 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 this, Stephanie's gonna tell me if later on if I get this quote wrong or right, mm-hmm. but I believe that Mr. Spock on Star Trek said something along the lines of, a difference that makes no difference is no difference. <laughs> I got that thumbs up? Yeah. Uh, and so I was really thinking about that when I was thinking about this idea of, you know, if, if a book in my collection that I think is one thing um, is actually something else, but the something else is just as, amazing a work of art, mm-hmm. does it make a difference? I don't have an answer to that question, mm-hmm. but I think it's an interesting question to play around with.
2: Well, your your novel does does call you to wonder that, because you argue through your character, well, you, I'm putting your words in your mouth, but your characters <laughs> question if, if these forgers are pre- producing documents so that... People every, so that school children everywhere can see what Jane Austen's original works, because I'm sure that's what every third grader dreams of, um, looked like. Then, uh, if if there was no deception, maybe they'd be doing a service.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, and I that, think that, that, that's the question you get to the to the question of um, the difference between between the intent behind an action and the action itself. Mm-hmm. That the action of creating something. Um, is a creative action, is an artistic action, but if the intent is to deceive, how does that change the creativity of the action? Does it does it not change it at all? Is the intent something completely separate from the artistic um, uh, impression or, or, or not? I, and I don't have an answer to that question, but I think that's a fun question to think about as you're reading about um, And one of the things I tried to do in The Bookman's Tale, if you've read it you'll know there's three different timelines. So there's a timeline that is Kind of the narrative present it's set in the 1990s because it really needed to happen before the internet took over the book business um, and then there's a then there 's a timeline when Peter's in college in the 1980s uh, and then there 's a timeline that begins in London in the um, 1590s and ends in rural Oxfordshire in the 1870s, and so I tried to have connections between these timelines. and the Forgery is a really good example because there's a place there's there's points in the book where where Peter in college is learning about um, the guy who forged the the Mormon letters. Um, Peter in the present. Uh, story is trying to figure out if this Pandosto is a forgery or not, um, and then there's characters in the historical timeline who who are actually forging documents that have to do with William Shakespeare. So, so I, li- I love this idea of sort of playing around with a theme in three different timelines. It's it's almost like theme and variations in a, in a piece of music, you know. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, something that I knew that I always wanted to write about when I started my blog is those issues that are timeless and yet are interpreted by us in very timely ways. And I love how you can really see that in the pages of your novel. Yeah. Um, okay, so art is forgery. No, forgery as art. Forgery in c- the same way could be art. In right. the same way <laughs> that you said Peter was studying the marginalia and living at the margins of his life, I really wanted to play around with do you see any greater symbolism in the forgery?
0: Well, what, what, I mean, I think, I think certainly one of the things that Peter is struggling with both um, metaphorically and in, in mm-hmm. the real world is what's, what's real and what's not real. Mm-hmm. So the question of is something a forgery or is it not a forgery is very much a question of what's real and what's not real. Mm-hmm. But Peter, for instance, is seeing his dead wife she comes and and speaks to him um, is it real or is it not real? Is it? I, I didn't know what it was when I wrote it. I found out later on what it was. Oliver Sacks explained it to me on an NPR interview what it was. Um, he, I, he, he wrote a book about... Um, Oliver Sacks wrote, wrote a book about hallucination. And I was listening to after Bookman's Tale was done, in the can, about to be published. I was driving along and I heard this radio interview and he said the most common type of hallucination... He first said first... the person having a hallucination it is no different from reality. And then he said the most common type of hallucination is hallucinating the presence of a recently deceased loved one. And I almost drove my car off the road because I was like that I really didn't know what was happening when Peter saw Amanda. I just knew that he saw her. Mm-hmm. So there's, I mean, that's a, that's a physical manifestation of this struggle with, that he has to, dis- to determine what's real and what's not real. But I think also he's, he's dealing with um, what emotions are real and what aren't real and what thoughts are real and what aren't real and where, how can he move from this sort of, uh, not quite fantasy world, but this unrealistic world that he's been living in, in into a more real world. So yes, I think that I think the question of forgery or not forgery is definitely reflected in the larger themes of the novel. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: So if you tell me that story again that you told me at dinner about teaching the class on beginnings and then the class on endings, do we think yeah. that's spoilery? Is that too No, spoilery? I don't
0: think that has to be a spoiler. Okay. So, I don't I was, think so I was I was asked um, last summer to teach a class up in Sparta, North Carolina about beginnings of novels. And so I, I taught a class about the beginning of The Bookman's Tale because I knew that one. Uh, and it's easy to, to get your class prepared to to r- r- talk about beginnings. You just stand up and read the first chapter to them. That's all they need, right? So then this summer they asked me, would I come back and would I teach a class about endings? And I thought well, okay, now they really need to read the whole book. So I said, if if the class will read The Bookman's Tale, I'll come back and read This is the sneaky way of selling 12 copies of your book, right? <laughs> um, and so I started to compare the opening chapter and the closing chapter, and I encourage you to do this with, with any book, but I, I went into this c- comparison not with any preconceived notions because I didn't sit down when I wrote the closing chapter to do anything that specifically related to the opening chapter, but I discovered, for instance, all these pairs of words where in the opening chapter it would say rainy and in the closing chapter it would say sunny. And in the opening chapter it would say sad and in the closing chapter it would say happy. All these opposite words. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting. I didn't do it on purpose, but it's pretty cool that it worked out that way. And then I realized that in the opening chapter, Peter's going into an enclosed space and in the closing chapter, he's coming out of an enclosed space. In both chapters, there is a slip of paper but in the the opening chapter, it's a really important slip of paper that pulls him into this entire mystery, and in the closing chapter, it's a slip of paper that has been rendered irrelevant by what has happened in Peter's life. Um, And so it was, you know, again, it was not anything that I did intentionally, but it was a really interesting exercise to compare the beginning and the end, sort of ignoring 250 pages in the middle, I don't encourage you to necessarily read the book that way, because there's a few bits in the middle that are kind of, I think, are fun, you know. But, um, but yeah, it sort of turned out that the, that the ending of the book was almost the inverse of the beginning. And I have not done this with any other books, but I wouldn't be surprised if we find that in, in other things that we read as well. And there may be authors who do that on purpose, um, but, it, but it may be that it's just a natural way of storytelling. That it's, a, that it's a balance, um, that, that the end sort of counterbalances the beginning. Mm. Uh.
2: All right. I'm going to ask Charlie one more question, and then we're going to take questions from you all. So get thinking. Charlie, I love a good literary mystery, and I know it is not just me. What is it about a book like The Bookman's Tale that pulls book lovers in?
0: Well... You know, the thing about book lovers is they love books. And this is a book that's about about books. And again, I think, I think a lot of book lovers love the same two things that I grew up with. They love the text. They love stories and characters and settings and all the things that make up a great novel. But they also love the physicality of a book. And I think this book, um, and, and most of my books, are... Are odes to those twin towers of bookishness, um, both the story and, and the and the physical book itself and i 'll tell you one quick story about the physical book of the bookman 's tale that sort of shows how all of that can work together. So in the bookman's tale there's a scene where Peter is binding a book for uh, Amanda his, his um, then girlfriend soon to be fiance to give to her as a birthday present. Um, I, used, I used a book called A Degree of Mastery in writing that book. It's a book that was written by somebody who, who interned as a bookbinder. I know nothing about bookbinding. People keep coming to me and saying oh you must be a bookbinder. I'm like no I'm a researcher. Um, <laughs> and the person who wrote that book sent me an email when the book was first published and said and thanked me for, for mentioning her in the acknowledgments, which was really cool. But the last thing that Peter does when he's binding that book is he stamps Amanda's initials in gold on the front cover. Now, if you have a hardback copy of the bookman's tale, Don't throw away the dust jacket, always keep your dust jacket, but peel the dust jacket back and look at the front cover of the book and you'll see my initials stamped in gold on the cover. That is a way in which the physical book and the text can interact with each other and can sort of enhance and comment on one another in a way that an electronic book, there's nothing wrong with electronic or audio books read books however you want to read books. But I think a lot of people who really love books love that kind of physicality and that potential for interaction between text and design. Um, and so when they read a book that's all about physical books, uh, and on top of it it's got Shakespeare and it's got a mystery uh, and it's got a romance, you know, you're going to like one of those things, I hope. Um, <laughs> And, and uh, the fact that you came here means that either there's a few of you here that like that, and there's a lot of you here that, that came to see Anne. and thank you. <laughs> either way, thank you very much.
2: Oh. Both and. It's all the same. <laughs> all right, I have questions from our online book clubbers right here, and then we're going to take your else questions. I liked the character of Peter Byerly
1: because of his uh, personality and that he's not really the uh, I guess in this in this world of toxic masculinity um, he's a a different type of especially you know male character yes. um, how did you come about uh, I guess Coming up with his personality, his you know
2: anxiety, his his issues, and and making that a, a big part of the story.
0: Well, first of all, thank you for that question and for liking Peter because I like Peter too. Um, I just finished the first dra- this week finished the first draft of a new novel, in in which Peter makes a tiny cameo appearance. Return, I couldn't resist. But um, yeah, you know it's interesting that you said that because there was actually during that long journey to publication there was actually a an agent who the novel down because they said they didn 't think Peter was heroic enough um, yeah and and um, he is a different kind of hero, but to me, uh, the characters who are most interesting are the ones who have a lot of problems that, that they have and yet they overcome it and they do they do what they have to do to, to you know to reach the point that they need to reach and so uh, it never i don 't think it ever occurred to me to write Peter as a Er, go! i I'm gonna go there and get the bad guys, kind of guy. He, I, I liked the idea of trying to help a broken person be a little bit less broken. And so, why was he broken? Well, first and foremost, because he was a widower. And we, we were talking at dinner tonight, and, and Ann said, Well, we won't give any spoilers, like, we won't say that Amanda died. And I was like, Well, we know that Amanda died on the first page. And she's like, Oh, yeah, that's right. It might be um, the first sentence. But, um, yeah and and then you know so yeah I gave him an anxiety disorder I gave him some some things to struggle with because we all struggle with things and if you want if I want my reader to identify with a character if that character doesn't have some things to struggle with you're not going to identify with him or her very well um, because that's that's what our lives are. I mean, I'm not saying our lives are awful, but we all have baggage. And I thought if I gave Peter some some baggage, it was it would make him not only more interesting but but somebody that that you could relate to and more specifically that I could relate to. I mean, I had to spend a long time with this guy, a lot longer than you did. And <laughs> and so it needed to be somebody that if it was going to start out with a broken person, and needed to be somebody that I cared enough about that I wanted to help him be less broken, um, and to help him on that journey. So that, I think that's that's kind of where he he started from. Um. So the question is, are there particular books I'm in the process of trying to acquire? Um, so we have an expression in the book world in, amongst collectors uh, where we, if, you, if, you're, if you're having a bookmarks old-fashioned with some of your collector friends, this will always come up in the conversation, what's your holy grail? Uh, and, and I like that expression so much, I wrote a whole book called The Lost Book of the Grail. But, um, you know, my... They, my cheap answer for that is my holy grail is the Lewis Carroll pamphlet that nobody knew existed. I mean, there's a, there's a number of Lewis Carroll's works, you know, shorter works that exist in zero copies, as far as we know. So to find one of those copies would be pretty great. Um, the, the best thing ever to find would be um, there are four volumes of his adult diaries that went missing in the 1920s. They were borrowed by a biographer, and then we just don't really know what happened to them. That that would be pretty awesome to find those. Um, So, yeah, I mean, a lot of times for me, it's, uh, you know, you can come up with, like, the book that you know about that you'd like to have a copy of, but the book you'd really like to have a copy of is the one that nobody knew about. (laughs) And that's, actually the topic of First Impressions, so, which is another one of my novels. It's, 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 about, it's a fictional book, but it's about a book that nobody realizes why this apparently unimportant book is actually super, super important.
2: Thank you. Thank you all for coming and for your good questions. And now it's Beth's
1: turn. <laughs> Huge round of applause.
0: <laughs> this has been a special episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with Ann Bogle and the Modern Mrs. Darcy Book Club. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and the podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer Studio posts new shows on the 1st and 15th of every month. On upcoming episodes, I'll be talking to Angie Cruz, Chandler Baker, and a special guest for our 50th episode coming up in December. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion.